Welcome to everyone joining us today. We're very happy to have you. Before we begin, we're going to turn it over to Dr. John Duke Anthony, founder and president of the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations, who will offer some introductory remarks. Professor Anthony, would you like to take it over? Thank you, Josh. Um, good afternoon. Good evening, uh, everyone, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we're pleased as can be and honored and privileged to be part of this uh, program. Uh, we know we're pioneering. We're breaking new pathways for the coming generation of uh, Arab youth uh, athletes and sports uh, participants. Uh, we're pleased to be co-sponsoring uh, this program with the King Faisal Foundation for Islamic Studies and Research. Uh, the foundation is long time chaired by His Royal Highness uh, Spence Turkey, El Faisal uh, bin Abdulaziz Al Saud who has been a friend and a participant and a supporter of what we seek to achieve in our educational mission at the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations. Uh, Prince Turkey has been a speaker for 11 different times, keynoting our annual Arab-U.S. Policymakers Conferences. And we're uh, pleased again and privileged and honored to be uh, asked to be part of this pioneering session. Uh, Josh Yaffe will be the moderator and the glue, the adhesive, the common thread, uh, keeping us all together as we proceed on the substantive and procedural dynamics of this program. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor Anthony. We very much appreciate that. <laughs> now, before we begin, uh, I want to be able to thank a couple individuals, Abdul Khawaiter at the King Faisal Center and Mark Murazink at the National Council. These two gentlemen were uh, crucial in putting this together and making sure that everything ran appropriately. And they deserve a lot of the credit for success. Now, the topic of sports diplomacy in the Middle East might seem rather straightforward, but I think it bears explaining exactly how we arrived at this panel discussion, because the origin of this event says a lot about why we're here today. This was originally planned as a conference that was scheduled to take place before the coronavirus with a lineup of speakers representing non-governmental organizations, many of whom you'll see on the lineup today. The idea was focused on working within civil society to promote teamwork, fitness, fair play among youth in the region, and we brought in the State Department on board because with everyone we talked to, everybody seemed to point back to the Office of Sports Diplomacy as a key provider of assistance and contacts. And as this concept grew, we realized this conference wasn't about civil society or government per se. It had <clears throat> nothing to do with promoting a particular policy or improving anyone's media image. Rather, we looked at our proposed speakers, each of whom has dedicated many years and decades of their lives to sports, and we felt that was the point. What these speakers had in common was not any desire to launder their reputation, but rather their active engagement in activities that push the boundaries of sport and challenge the norms of the societies they live or work in. To accuse them of using sports for the purposes of image peddling would be a disservice to the hard work and dedication that each of these individuals put in through long years of devotion to their missions. Of course, when the pandemic hit, we were unable to convene the conference here in Washington, D.C. as planned, but talking to the King Faisal Center, their Secretary General, Dr. Saud al-Sarhan, suggested we could run it live on the internet as a collaborative effort. And I told him that could work, but only at the condition that any additional participants would have to be similarly devoted to this mission of civic engagement through sports. And in keeping with the theme of this event, 
We could allow speakers who have a legitimate commitment to using sports as a tool for education, for conflict resolution, or for community building. And with the additional speakers that the King Faisal Center brought to bear, I feel we have that, that together we've achieved that goal. Each of these speakers, both our Saudi participants, our American participants, and others, they each have a very personal connection to the work they do and a purpose for being here today that ties in directly to the mission that they're trying to accomplish. And with that, I would like to introduce our first speaker, Prince Faisal bin Bandar bin Sultan. Prince Faisal is the head of the Saudi Federation for Electronic and Intellectual Sports, and he's been in that role since 2017. It has a mission of supporting all aspects of the gaming process and making Saudi Arabia a global gaming hub. In 2012, he founded Sakhar Al Jazeera, a company devoted to recycling in the environment. And what I'd like to do before I turn it over to him is ask him, Prince Faisal, uh, it seems that now we're facing a situation with the coronavirus pandemic in which traditional contact sports based in stadiums and arenas can't function to the extent that they did in the past. And that makes your work at the Federation particularly interesting. Could you perhaps tell us a bit about what your work involves and where you see things going? Uh, absolutely. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank the, the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations uh, for organizing this seminar. The work uh, that you do to bridge the gap between communities and cultures is essential to improving understanding between nations and peoples alike. And I'd also like to thank the King Faisal Center for Research in Islamic Studies for their support in organizing this <coughs> seminar. And I'm grateful for their work um, in generating and transmitting knowledge between the kingdom and the rest of the world. Now, the, I'd like to take a step back for one second. I and mean, when we talk about sports diplomacy, this to me has always been an interesting topic because sport has an amazing power to inspire and unite people and that, that no other avenue has. You know, through sports, all polarizing issues can fade away and it leaves us with the enjoyment of the activity itself, the celebration of the skills and performances on display that can be appreciated across the board. From the Olympics to the World Cup and everything in between, we see nations of the world come together uh, to celebrate something magnificent. Now, as you mentioned, as president of the Saudi Esports Federation, I'd first like to, to explain for one second why we as esports are part of this, uh, this pantheon of sports. People think, you know, we, we're trying to move away from the, the old paradigm of esports, you know, and gaming as people in, in, the, in a basement, you know, with TVs, you know, you talk about social distancing, that was the initial, uh, initial social distancing. But that, that, whole, that whole thing has changed. The gaming community and the esports community is active, they participate, and we, there was a study done uh, in Germany studying esports players for five years, and they found that Heart, the heart rates of esports players during tournaments can reach between 160 to 180, which is equivalent to you know, a marathon runner. Uh, their cortisol levels in their blood, the stress levels, reach the equivalent of F1 drivers. So if these are the stresses, uh, and that's not to say anything about the mental stresses of competing in front of thousands of people as in any other traditional sport. So if these are the stresses on one's body, then our esports professionals have to first look at themselves as professional athletes and then they have to be treated uh, as professional athletes as when it comes to fitness, <clears throat> mental health, uh, physical health, social health, and all of these aspects. 
And one of the things that I truly love about esports is that it really is an all-inclusive sport. It is the ultimate equalizer. In gaming and esports, skill is your only differentiator, your skill in the game. And you know, it doesn't matter how big or small you are, how fast or slow, all that matters is what, there's, what you can do within the game. And it brings people together in a way that is different. I'm not saying better or worse, but so much different than anything else. Because your first interaction with someone is through their skill level, not their race or gender or religion or anything else. So your first impression of someone is their skill level. And it allows people to thrive more instantly, um, in my opinion. And because of that, it has such a global reach. And it now competes with, and in some cases surpasses, the world's most watched spectator sports in terms of viewership, followership, and engagement. And it's, it also has this unique way that uh, esports professionals can interact with their community. You know, in more traditional sports, it's difficult, you know, when someone enters a stadium, it's difficult to call out every person walking in. Whereas in esports, you have that one-to-one -one communication. You know, you have people sending out tweets, players responding to tweets. You have them going on in their off time and streaming. And having that one-to-one -one communication with their fans that is difficult to do in other traditional sports. And as you said, in times like this, I mean, these are difficult times for everyone. Um, but this has given us a chance as an esports and gaming community to show the potential that esports has to bring people together, whether it's events, uh, you know, with Madden in, in the US, um, you know, NBA 2K, FIFA football, you know, all these events are happening to bring people together. And I'm very proud to say that we as Safis uh, have started an event called Gamers Without Borders. This is a, a charitable online gaming event. Uh, with the aim of uniting gamers around the globe in the fight against COVID-19. The money generated from this event will go to our partner organizations, such as UNICEF, uh, Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, the International Medical Corps, uh, the Norwegian Refugee Council, Direct Relief, uh, King Salman Relief Center, uh, and the International Telecoms Union. And this tournament, it has three distinct aspects, this event. The first is uh, what we call watch and we're asking people to come and watch professional players at the top of their game play against each other and for this we have 48 professional players from 40 different countries who have so far raised 4.5 million dollars uh, for COVID-19 relief with over 5 million viewers streaming in seven different languages on our channels and it's it's been Amazing to see, you know, all this, the, the, that community, the professional community come together. And the second aspect we call game. And in the game, it's a series of um, online tournaments, community tournaments, with the aim of, you know, everybody's at home, uh, everybody's staying safe. Well, let's give them something to keep them entertained. Let's give them something to, to watch, to take part in, uh, to be a part of this international community. And also we have uh, what we would call our, our sponsors, rather than sponsoring us as an initiative, we have them sponsoring what is essentially the community. So they are sponsoring in the way of giveaways to the people taking part in the tournament, uh, in the form of you know, uh, donations to charity.
And in these communication, in, the, in these community tournaments, uh, our most recent numbers, we have over 220,000 people who've registered so far, um, over $290,000 in prizes given from our sponsors to the community. Our winners have come from 21 different countries, but we've had participation from 72 different countries, um, which is, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing to see. And our third aspect, now that we've got all this community involved and we've got them all entertained, we want to give them that uh, another level. So we have a third aspect that we're calling learn. And this is in cooperation with the Ministry of Communications and Information Technology, where we've designed a series of webinars, hackathons, and programming sessions to help educate the audience about the industry. Um, and we've had over 20,000 people registered from 80 different nationalities. And the amazing thing to me is we're only halfway through this event. Um, overall, by the end of this event, we will have donated $10 million, if not more, uh, to charity from, from the professional tournaments. And we hope to be raising more from the, uh, from the community. And it gives us an opportunity to showcase the, how close-knit the gaming community is. And when giving, given the opportunity, how they can come together across the world. I mean, our participants from all these different nationalities cover every continent, you know, almost, you know, many, many different countries around the world and all coming together for one aim. And that's to come together, to game, to enjoy yourself and to do good and donate to COVID-19. And I think it's amazing to, and, and a pleasure and an honor to be a part of something like that. Um, and we also have, you know, on, on a physical aspect, and I, I won't go into this in too much depth because uh, I know they're, they're coming up, uh, up next, but we have a partnership with Saudi, um, uh, the, the, with, in Saudi with the SFA that we call Move to Game. And this is using gaming to get people to move um, and you know, having people generate steps and generate movement through gaming. Um, but again, I'll, uh, I'll leave that um, uh, for, for the professionals to go into. And um, just in, in closing, I'd like to again thank the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations and the King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies for hosting this event. And thank you all of you for tuning in. It's a pleasure to be a part of this and a pleasure to be one of these great, uh, you know, in the same uh, category as all these great panelists that are involved with us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Prince Faisal. We very much appreciate it. If I could, before we lose you, if I could just ask you one one quick question. Uh, and and again, I uh, I want to to remind everyone that when you're when you're as a speaker when you're on, if we can just make sure that your video is on, so that we can all uh, get the pleasure of of seeing you as well as hearing you. I just want to be able to ask Prince Faisal, what's your personal connection with esports? Was there a particular game that you played that you loved that that got you involved in this when you were younger? Something that that you reminisce about yourself? Well, it depends on what you're asking. If you're asking gaming in general, I, I've played, you know, pretty much the gamut. You know, everything from, you know, Atari to Sega Genesis, Nintendo, Xbox, PlayStation. You know, I've, I've kind of run the whole gamut. If you're talking about professional esports, the only thing that I've ever come close to in esports, I'm, I'm a, quite an avid Madden player. I'm a big American football fan. Um, I've, I've, I've tried to enter a few tournaments. But uh, I'm not quite on the professional level yet, but I'm, I'm, I'm still hoping. <laughs> F 
Fair enough. That's fantastic. Thank you. Uh, I grew up with a ColecoVision with an Atari 2600 adapter myself. We'd like to go next to Shaima Saleh Al-Husseini. Shaima is the managing director of the Saudi Sports for All Federation. Uh, this is tasked with staging activities for all members of society, especially involving women. And she was previously a lecturer at the Saudi Institute for Public Administration and director of clubs and educational institutes at the General Sports Authority. Shaima, could we turn it over to you and could you explain to us what does sports for all mean? Of course. Um, hi, everyone. I would like to first thank the National Council and King Faisal Foundation for arranging the seminar. So uh, Saudi Sports for All Federation is a grassroots organization. So as a grassroots organization, we get involved in grassroots diplomacy, developing dialogue and knowledge transfer with global organizations. And the reason we do that is to increase public uh, participation in physical activity. Uh, we see it as contributing to society as well as individual development, whether it's in sports, whether it's in health, whether it's in education. And uh, sports is actually a great influencer in making the world a better place because sports is very inclusive as well as, as, well as it's universal. So it's inclusive because it goes across um, all uh, age groups, uh, gender, race, and it builds friendships. It also strengthens the community, especially in Saudi. We're a very uh, collective uh, tribal community. So people like to do things in groups and like to do things together. Also, sports is very universal because it transcends uh, language and um, across cultures and it communicates across cultures as well. It also enables uh, intercultural understanding and community transformation. And that's what Saudi is going through right now with the National uh, Transformational Program. So for SFA in specific, which is the Saudi Sports for All Federation, we focus on grassroots uh, sports as well as community-based uh, physical activities. It's an essential element uh, of our national transformational program, which was established by His Royal Highness, the Crown Prince, in order to drive economic um, uh, diversification for the future of the nation. And we can't do that without having well-educated, healthy, active population. And that's what we're trying to do with Sports for All. So our focus mainly is to build active and healthy nation and not focus on elite sports or competitive sports. So we're trying to make sports actually a way of life and our focus is strong impact and sustainability. So that includes young children, it includes adults, uh, families, um, the older generation as well, because by 2030, we wanna get 40% of the population active in Saudi. Um, so um, uh, going back to what uh, Prince Faisal just mentioned, and during this uh, uh, COVID-19 pandemic, we're trying to get also people active in their houses as well. So we have uh, three different campaigns that we launched. Um, the first camp, and these campaigns are trying to reach and motivate people uh, because during these times, it's very important to focus on mental health as well as physical health, as well as nutrition because people are not moving a lot. So we do that by um, looking after their mental and uh, well-being, uh, by giving online advice, uh, guidance, support through multiple um, uh, campaigns that we did. Uh, and uh, one of these campaigns was in collaboration with uh, the Saudi uh, 
uh, electric, uh, electronic and intellectual uh, federation with Prince Faisal. And um, we also cooperated with WHO on this uh, campaign for we donated uh, 1 billion, uh, sorry, we contributed 1 billion steps and their goal was 10 billion steps for the WHO. And we did that because like Prince Faisal said, there's a lot of interest and people are actually uh, interacting uh, with e-gaming as well as physical activity. So uh, we had more than almost 60,000 people participated in less than two weeks, and we're just halfway there. We're going to continue to do it for uh, a whole month and maybe extend it according to uh, how the population um, uh, are interested in extending these programs. Uh, something that we also focus on is team sports uh, because they are already popular in Saudi. So uh, especially football and basketball. Basketball is actually a green field in Saudi now where people, a lot of people are, uh, we're increasing uh, activity in basketball. And we are introducing different tournaments and leagues, of course, with um, different entities such as the school federation, the university federation, a lot of giga projects like Gidea, uh, who are interested in actually creating uh, leagues in order to increase participation in Saudi as well as tournaments of all levels. So we start at grassroots and we go all the way to universities. Uh, another thing that I want to tap into is um, how sports creates cross-border uh, alliances and uh, with other countries, different organizations. And there's a lot of positive experience in that because um, it just shows the community how they can develop themselves uh, to the to show international presence later on. So, for example, we are active members of TAFISA, which is the International Body for Sports for All. We uh, also cooperate with uh, the World Health Organization, UNESCO, the UN, and the International Olympic Committee. Especially that we are part of a bigger, um, uh, we are part of the sports sector, which is the Ministry of Sports and the Saudi Arabian uh, Olympic Committee, and. Um, as uh, also uh, we focus a little bit on um, uh, women excelling in sports because this is a new sec sector in Saudi when it comes to women. So uh, uh, PE has just been uh, enrolled in girls' uh, schools in Saudi around three years ago. And uh, their international presence is very important uh, for two reasons. The first one is to develop knowledge um, uh, of our kingdom and to show the capabilities of the girls in this kingdom. And the second reason is to build bridges uh, across cultural uh, divisions. And one example is um, we established the world, uh, the, sorry, the Women Football League earlier this year. And even before we established this league, we had participated in the national um, uh, Global Girls World Cup, which is um, uh, it's uh, a competition under um, the umbrella of the UN, where multiple teams uh, compete worldwide to support uh, specific SDGs, and they play uh, a football game. So they get uh, multiple points points on supporting the SDG and the different campaigns they did for that, as well as the game itself. And the girls were won second place, and it's their first international participation. And they participated in New York in the UN Assembly last year. And I think that's a good boost uh, for um, the uh, females in Saudi to show them that even though um, we are a bit late 
in uh, implementing these programs, the turnaround is very uh, strong and fast in Saudi. That's fantastic, Shaima. We very much appreciate that. We'll hopefully come back in the Q&A and we can do some more at the very end. Uh, next, I'd like to go to our next speaker, Mark Clark. Mark Clark is CEO of Generations for Peace. This is a Jordan-based organization using sports to, and other activities to build peace-building activities among youth in all sorts of parts of the world. Uh, he joined the organization in 2011, previously living in Papua New Guinea, where he was working for Australia's Agency for International Development to help develop their sports program there. Uh, he also worked in the DRC, in Iraq, and in India. He's a graduate of Oxford and Edinburgh, among other schools, and was a British Army officer, as well as an official in the FCO. Mark, I'd like to turn it over to you and ask you, can you explain to us what Generations for Peace does, how they do it, and what you feel are some of the accomplishments the organization has achieved? Well, thank you. And uh, may I begin by saying your Royal Highness, uh, dear friends, um, I'm joining you today from, from my home in Amman, Jordan. I think many of us are calling in from, from lockdown conditions. I want to thank uh, the King Faisal Center, uh, the National Council for US-Arab Relations and uh, the State Department's uh, sport diplomacy team uh, for convening this conversation today. Uh, and it's an honor to be included amongst such esteemed company uh, on this panel uh, to share the journey of Generations for Peace. I think for, for many of our speakers today, uh, my own part in, in the Generations for Peace journey really begins with, with my personal passion for sport. And I think many of us feel that and have experienced sport in, in many different ways. Um, I was very fortunate to be exposed to many sports uh, as, a, as a young person growing up. I particularly enjoyed team sports, uh, especially rugby, uh, but also field hockey. And I also participated in individual disciplines like karate, uh, squash, uh, long distance running and so on. And in my professional life, prior to joining Generations for Peace, um, I've been involved in a variety of, of sport for good, sport for development, sport for peace programs um, of some sort or another since 2003. Um, so just to give a few examples of the stepping stones towards my experience with Generations for Peace. Um, in Iraq, we were involved in using grassroots sport activity in youth centers across the country uh, to engage youth. This is in the period 2003, 2004, 2005, and to engage especially young male youth um, to involve them in positive activities. And it was really a, a security-led agenda in those years. But we were also involved in elite sport during those years in supporting the, the re-establishment of a new Iraqi Olympic Committee and uh, a, a, through a democratic process of elections that created a, a secular structure with uh, Sunni and Shia, Kurds and Arabs, uh, women included on the, on the new Olympic Committee. And for, for a time, it was a, a small good news story of what a, what a democratic process could produce in terms of a structure in Iraq. And I was privileged to then support that Olympic Committee and to go with the Iraqi team to participate in the Athens 2004 Olympic Games, where incredibly the, the young Iraqi football team uh, came fourth, uh, losing in the bronze medal playoff match to Italy. And from Iraq, I, I went to Congo, as, as Josh said, uh, working in Democratic Republic of Congo, again, using sport 
uh, as an entry point to engage youth for this time, to engage youth in, in awareness and education uh, about HIV and AIDS. And it's from DRC um, that I went to Papua New Guinea. And this was a much more ambitious 10-year sport for development initiative, a partnership between the Australian government and the Papua New Guinean government, um, using sport again as, a, as an entry point, but also as a vehicle for positive change for HIV AIDS education, but also addressing other issues of, of conflict and violence. So in urban centers, looking at uh, youth gangs and problems with homebrew alcohol uh, and crime, in the highlands of the country, looking at tribal fighting and using sport as a vehicle for engagement uh, between different villages. Uh, also looking at uh, systemic violence against women across the country and looking at how to empower girls and women uh, through the vehicle of sport. And looking at post-conflict reconciliation in Bougainville that had endured a, a very violent civil war. So that exposed me to a variety of different contexts in which sport consistently um, was, a, was an entry point and a vehicle for behavior change. And so joining Generations for Peace uh, in January 2011, uh, just before the Arab Spring, and so much has changed in our region um, since then, um, I, I joined uh, to serve as CEO. And I think I'm, I'm really passionate, apart from my passion for sport, I'm, I'm passionate about what it can do. So I'm passionate about transformational change, firstly in individuals and then in communities, but I also have a deep passion about organizational change. And Generations for Peace has been on an incredible journey, an incredible learning journey and an evolution um, of uh, quite a steep growth curve um, over the last nine and a bit years since I joined. And so I, I feel very fortunate um, that my role uh, encompasses those, those three domains I'm, I'm really interested and curious about. Generations for Peace has its roots in the Olympic movement and the global sport movement. It was founded by His Royal Highness Prince Faisal Al Hussein of Jordan in 2007, um, explicitly as a, as a peace through sport initiative of the Jordan Olympic Committee. And its, its mission was really to combine the idea of grassroots sport engagement, something His Royal Highness Prince Faisal was extremely passionate about, with um, the, the idea of a peace-building mission, and that peace-building is really about um, developing approaches to engage young people, long-term peace-building, uh, and build the attitudes and competencies um, that can sustain um, tolerance across different identity divides. And so ultimately, all Generations for Peace programs um, use sport and now other tools as well to promote four values. And so these four values are firstly youth leadership. And I think on this panel, we can all understand how effective different sport engagement can be in exposing young people um, to opportunities, not to learn leadership in a classroom, but really to, to practice it, to have opportunities to, to demonstrate um, their own leadership um, amongst other young people, amongst their peers, in a team, but also to demonstrate their leadership in, in projects and activities in their wider community. Our second value is community empowerment. So really this idea of being focused at grassroots level 
and really listening to and responding to local needs and finding consistently that sports, it is a universal language. This doesn't mean that the same sports are popular in every community on the planet, but on every community on the planet, there is some sport activity being played. And so it's available as an entry point, especially to engage young people. But more than that, it's a, it's a vehicle into which you can integrate behavior change education and really get sustainable change. Our third value is active tolerance. So this idea that across different identity divides, there are often conflicts. There's often a, a communication gap. And so again, sport being a universal language, it offers a, a different space, a safe space, if the sport activity is, is well facilitated, um, to bring people together across conflict divides, to engage with each other, and to enjoy this passion that they all share, this particular sport. And to develop this idea of, through experiencing the other, you can firstly break the stereotypes between different identity groups, build deeper understanding, respect, and trust, and then to understand that there is great value in those experiences. So there is value in diversity. And that's really what we mean by active tolerance, getting people to reach the point where they are actively seeking to engage others beyond their own identity group. And our fourth and final value is responsible citizenship. This idea that at the grassroots level in a community, every member of that community is a, is a citizen of that community. So this is really at local level, not thinking of citizens as the holder of a passport of a, of a nation state, but really everyone belongs to their own local community. And as a citizen at that level, they have a responsibility to contribute what they can with their talents and their strengths to the future of their own community. And it really links back to this youth leadership idea that even youth have a really important role to play and a huge potential to contribute as peace builders and as actors in development in ways that are often overlooked. So Generations Pieces is now 13 years old. Uh, we're ranked number 26 in the top 500 NGOs in the world by NGO Advisor based in Geneva. Uh, that makes us the number three peace building NGO on their ranking. And we're also the only peace through sport organization officially recognized by the International Olympic Committee. So we've come quite a long way and we're getting certain recognition for our work, but we still feel like a, a young organization. You know, at 13 years old, we're just a teenager and we want to continue that learning journey. And that learning journey has really been about experimenting and testing. Firstly, testing this, this founding concept that sport can be a vehicle for peace building, testing it in many countries. Over the last 13 years, we've done programming in communities in 51 countries across the Middle East and North Africa, but also Sub-Saharan Africa, parts of Asia, the Balkans, and most recently, uh, our first ever program uh, in the USA. And I'll come back to that in a moment. And, and through that um, exposure in very diverse conflict settings, different developmental settings, and of course, different sport and cultural settings, we've developed a, a curriculum. It's a peace building curriculum, but it, it includes an understanding of the, the power of sport to engage, 
to uh, be a vehicle for sustained behavior change. And we've been doing that through a, what is really a volunteer model. So over the last 13 years, we've trained more than 15,500 uh, youth leaders. Uh, and the training is really just the beginning of a long-term relationship with them. We believe very much in the long-term commitment by us to them, and it's reciprocated. We support with training and mentoring and then advanced training, specialized training. And it's really a, a long-term journey uh, that our vol volunteers stay with us uh, for six, seven, eight and, and more years. And why is that relationship so uniquely special? I think it's because young people around the world, across the Middle East and beyond, are often experiencing programs that are very stop-start where they have a exposure, an opportunity perhaps to a, a short training, a seminar, a conference, a workshop, but without any programmatic support where they can actually take what they learned in the training or the workshop and still be supported to apply it to their own context and to, to try and achieve the change that they themselves want to see in their own communities. So that's really been our model with these 15,500 youth leaders around the world. And then what do they do? What do they achieve with their own programs? Well, they've been engaging children and other youth and adults in a variety of settings and have impacted uh, a little over 740,000 um, uh, target group participants. I mentioned sport, but we're also finding part of our, our lessons learned has been a shift away from using pure sport activities, the type of sport codes uh, that I grew up playing and many of us on the panel are familiar with, to find actually sport-based games um, that still use the, the energy of sport, the competitive element of team sport play, some sort of sport equipment, um, but uh, uh, they're very much games that are not explicitly the official sport codes. And this has the advantage of, firstly, lowering the, the barrier of entry. We found that with the official sport codes, as you enter a community and start saying it's going to be a, a football or, or soccer-based program or a basketball program or a volleyball program or whatever sport you care to mention, young people would immediately have a, have a barrier in their mind. They would immediately be making a choice. Oh, I, I know I'm good at that sport, so I'll participate. Or I know I'm not good at that sport and I'm not going to want to participate. So by making them sport-based games, it lowers the barrier to entry. And in particular, in the Middle East region, that's critically important when we look at uh, maximizing the participation of, of girls and female participants uh, in these activities. Um, the second advantage was that the sport-based games can be much, much more intentional in integrating the behavior change education that we want to see. And we did comparative studies where we see actually the impact is, is higher, but it's also uh, sustained longer through doing sport-based game programming rather than pure sport programming. I do believe there is a significant place in the, in the development spectrum for sport programming that uses official sport codes. And the academic literature makes a nice distinction um, between sport plus and plus sport. And so we would consider Generations for Peace is really positioned in the plus sport uh, end of that developmental spectrum. 
I want to credit the, the US State Department also, uh, giving an example of our, our programming and how it's reached scale. Um, here in the, in the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, um, it was a, a small grant from the State Department's MEPI program um, some seven years ago that initiated a, a pilot program um, beginning to look at the issue of systemic violence in public schools in Jordan. And the pilot was uh, looking at just four schools. And over the last seven years, I'm, I'm proud to say, and I'm sure Ryan and others in, in the State Department will be proud to hear, we've expanded that program. MEPI was the catalyst, and we've expanded that program now um, to a thousand schools, engaging every public school student in Jordan aged 12 to 16. And we're using sport-based games that are now integrated into the Ministry of Education uh, curriculum and integrated into the school day, where before they were after-school activities. And I think that's an important journey um, that also illustrates how important it is to engage existing structures. If you want to achieve sport-based programming at scale, you have to find the strong existing structures that are available to you, not bypass them and set up alternative parallel structures. And you have to then invest a lot in, in the knowledge transfer, the capacity building and the mentoring of the, the human capital within those structures. So in our case with that sport uh, in, in schools program, training and mentoring school teachers right across the kingdom, but also Ministry of Education officials at national and, and sub-national level. And we're, we have a similar program in parallel with the Ministry of Youth here in Jordan in youth centers right across the country. And I think the context of Jordan, um, you'll be very aware of the, the Syrian refugee crisis. So there were plenty of pre-existing developmental issues in Jordan, including violence in schools. But the Syrian refugee uh, crisis uh, and the additional um, uh, number of young people of school age um, uh, really placed an enormous burden on communities right across Jordan. And our focus over the last seven years in that context has been in host communities. More than 80% of Syrian refugees in Jordan live in host communities, not in the large refugee camps. And so it's in these host communities where there are enormous pressures on every public service, on, on schooling, but also on healthcare, on uh, um, uh, sanitation, on also shelter and accommodation, and of course on formal and informal uh, employment. So with, these are communities under enormous pressures. And as such, communities, both Jordanians and Syrian refugees, um, began to resort to extreme coping mechanisms. And so, you know, we, we saw an increase in child labor, in early marriage, in crime and in violence, and not just violence between Jordanians and Syrians, but also just amongst Jordanians and amongst Syrians. So sport is a, is a great vehicle to enter a community, to engage systemically in schools, in youth centers, and to really support this, this social cohesion, to reduce tensions and to support youth volunteerism, youth leadership, this sense of active tolerance and responsible citizenship I referred to. I think we're, we're also grateful for the, the opportunity to work around the world. And I mentioned our first ever program in the USA began last year. And it's engaging youth in violence reduction 
on the south side of Chicago in partnership with the, the Gary Comer Youth Center based there and with support from Laureus Sport for Good Foundation. And so this is, this is quite an interesting narrative. So for an NGO based in Jordan, but working around the world, to come into a, a context like the south side of Chicago, to come from the Middle East to the USA and to support violence reduction there, it seems to flip the narrative, which typically has the, the flow of knowledge and competencies and experience um, in, the, in the reverse direction. Um, but it's not by accident. I think there are already very strong links between Jordan and the USA and also between Chicago and Amman. They are sister sissies. There's a link between the, the mayor of Amman and the mayor of Chicago. And I, I think the, the opportunity for youth from Chicago to come to Jordan as they did last year and to experience a different culture, a different setting, but to share something in common, that they are both youth in Jordan and in our programs around the world and youth in Chicago are harnessing something they're passionate about, the power of sport, and using it for good in their own communities um, to reduce violence and uh, promote more, more tolerant and, and non-violent ways of acting. I want to close with just one comment on the, the dominant challenge I think we are all facing with COVID-19 and, and the fact it's, it's not only a public health crisis, but it's also an economic crisis that's going to definitely hit the sports sector and the sport for good sector. And it's also a social crisis. We're seeing different um, increases in violence and other developmental issues. And that's only going to be further exacerbated as the economic crisis really starts biting. So I think sport and sport for good organizations needs to maintain their relevance and to pivot their, their youth engagement and their sport for development programs to be relevant in that context. And Generations Peace has firstly been doing a lot of transfer of our, our trainings into digital trainings, of course, like many organizations. But we've even been um, promoting our sport-based games to stay home activities that uh, young people can do in their own households, even under extreme lockdown conditions, the very strict curfew uh, that Jordan has been experiencing, for example. And then looking ahead, as every country around the world looks at how to lift lockdown conditions, we've been looking at the protocols, the safety protocols that need to be in place as you, as you begin to engage young people again in the real world, how can our sport activities and our sport based games be conducted safely? What sort of distancing measures need to be in place? What sort of sanitization and protection measures um, need to be in place? And we, we all long, I think, for the day when we can return to that. But these protocols are going to be very important as a, as a middle step through that transition. So very grateful for the, the opportunity to be on the panel. Uh, and it's a privilege to be amongst such company. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Mark. We're so happy that you were able to join us today. Um, there's two issues that you highlighted, which I think are really critical, and maybe we'll come back to them at the end for all the speakers. One of them is the, the, how you develop public-private partnerships, uh, which your organization has done in many cases. Uh, but every new uh, place, location that you work in, and every new activity you do, you have to recreate that relationship between the private sector and the public sector, and that can be very challenging. And the second issue you raise, which I hope our other speakers will also address, is sustainability. 
not just sustainability of conventional programs, which itself is a challenge. Uh, keeping a program going over six, seven, eight years is extraordinary. Uh, most NGOs don't make it past a year or two. Once their uh, money from their sponsor runs out, it's pretty much dead. So being able to sustain the conventional program many years in the future is a real challenge and a real trick. But to do that under the current circumstances, um, it's even a greater challenge. Who knows if the programming that we're doing today, the types of programs that we're doing online through various organizations, whether any of that will be relevant another two years from now or three years from now, or maybe it'll be more relevant. It's really hard to say at this point. Now I'd like to turn it over to Kemp Golden, our next speaker. Kemp, uh, based here in Washington, DC, is the president and founder of The Cause Baseball. It's a nonprofit dedicated to bringing baseball to youth in the Arab world. I'd love it if Kemp could explain for us uh, a bit of what he's accomplished, what he's managed, uh, both in Egypt and what his goals are for the for other places. Uh, I'll turn it over to him now, Kemp. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Josh. Um, I am very excited to be here amongst such esteemed company. I'd just like to thank the King Faisal Center and uh, thank the National Council for putting together such an incredible panel and, and giving us this platform to talk a little bit about um, all the exciting things we're doing right now in baseball in the region. And, you know, to, to pick up on Josh's point, um, we launched a couple years ago, uh, basically with uh, 40 kids and their parents learning baseball. In the past year, we had 2,500 kids and their parents who are learning the game of baseball. So remarkable growth. But what is Because Baseball? So our motto is bringing people together through baseball. Um, I grew up uh, with the sport, and, and I recognize its ability to bring people together at three distinct levels. The family level, learn to play with your, your mom and dad. Um, the community level, uh, in, in my neighborhood, it was baseball that brought all the kids together who went to different schools, who came from different backgrounds. It was baseball on the streets of Richmond, Virginia, and in the, in the side yards, in the parks uh, that brought us together. And then at the cultural level, uh, baseball was served a defining role in breaking down the race barrier, uh, the color barrier, um, in our country. It was Jackie Robinson, who before politics, policy, even in many ways, uh, the hearts and minds of America at large could get there. Jackie Robinson and baseball broke through a division that a lot of people wondered, could it ever be broken? Taking those lessons, I, I looked and said, we live in a world today full of conflict. And what better way to continue to bring people together than baseball? And so we began in Egypt, and my, and my vision was to use baseball to bring people together again at the family, community, and cultural levels. And we've seen extraordinary success in that capacity uh, in the few years that we've been in operation. Um, at the family level, we have mothers and fathers, just picture moms throwing with their sons, dads throwing with their daughters, because that's what's happening on fields and streets of Cairo right now. At the, at the community level, we have people from all uh, walks of life, all worldviews. Um, so, you know, just as an example, we have rich kids from the elite families, middle-class kids, poor kids, orphans, all playing together, learning a beautiful game of baseball, and learning to communicate and relate on the field of play. At the cultural level, uh, the game is taught by a combination of American and Egyptian adult volunteers. 
And, you know, it's been remarkable to watch the lesson that these kids learn as they see adults, Egyptians, coaching with adult Americans. I mean, we can, we can, we can sit there and have all sorts of lessons on, um, on uh, tolerance, on unity. Uh, we can talk people's ears off, but the modeling of that behavior in their everyday life, in their everyday play, leaves a lasting impact and imprint on their minds and, and hopefully on um, the way that they look at their fellow man. And this goes both ways, because uh, part of some of the things we've talked about are sustainability today, um, you know, not just having one-off events. Um, and part of our vision as we continue to bring baseball as this vehicle for cross-cultural, cross-community, inter-family uh, community building, uh, you know, with all these things, we have to think, how do we sustain this? And one of the ways is continuing to train parents and adults um, especially PE teachers, so that they can pass it on uh, to kids in their own schools. And, you know, what's been fun is we brought over uh, one of our Egyptian volunteer coaches, a teacher. His name is Waleed to the United States. Um, he spent time at the Collegiate School in Richmond, Virginia, where he worked with the PE staff, um, learned what it was like to be a Western athletic director, um, and then he serves as an assistant coach on the varsity baseball team. I'm really getting incredible exposure to all these levels. So he returned to Egypt as the most highly trained um, coach in Egyptian baseball history. But, and and that's, that's a great accomplishment in itself from a purely sport perspective. But I think when I look back on that time, and I think when, when people at Collegiate and Waleed really looks back on his experience, the most powerful take-home lesson for him and the most powerful take-home lesson for the community was how he changed perceptions of a country um, and of a people uh, there in uh, Richmond, Virginia. So over the course of time, Waleed really, he became integral uh, to this community. And he, uh, you know, would pass down the halls. Everyone would, would say hi, give him five. I mean, everyone knew in a 1,500-person school knew Waleed before he left. He, he taught them all about Egyptian culture, about ancient Egyptian culture, about modern Egyptian culture, showing them that it was more than just pyramids. Um, and that, he's, that, that these are human beings that interact in an awesome, really powerful way. Um, and I, I think the most poignant moment for me was Waleed's last day at Collegiate. I had the privilege to go watch the baseball game as he finished up. Um, and at the end of the game, uh, after Collegiate had won their baseball game, there was this sort of revelation you could hear amongst the kids as they said, wait, this is Waleed's last game. Um, and I watched as they all surrounded Waleed and chanted for him. And then one by one, um, when the cameras weren't rolling, when no one was watching, embraced him. Um, it, was, it was real love. It was real understanding. It was real um, relationship, friendship building that occurred through the sport of baseball. And I remember one of the, the kids saying to me after it was over, you know, when Waleed arrived, I wondered, you know, what's happening here? You know, I, how does he fit into this whole baseball um, school thing? And he said, now that Waleed's leaving, I, I can't imagine baseball and collegiate without him. And again, to me, individual anecdotal stories like that show the power of sport. Um, and so our vision as we move forward in Egypt and in the, in the region at large is to continue to expand, uh, to continue to work with schools, train PE teachers, raise a next generation of baseball players so that we see Olympians, professionals enter 
uh, into the ranks of uh, baseball players. Um, and so while Egypt was the start of our um, endeavor, one of my great passions and visions is to see the next stop to be Saudi Arabia for baseball. So I'm very excited just imagining uh, a generation of young kids uh, in Saudi and their parents learning this game, uh, loving this game, and finding this new medium that is sport baseball to connect, to communicate, to build friendships uh, with uh, people both within their society and across the ocean. So I'm very excited about that. I would say, you know, one other topic that people have been talking about is, uh, is, is this time of COVID-19 and how that affects sports. And as, as I think has been outlined by, by a number of people, the, 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 effect, the ramifications are massive. Um, and so what we've been thinking through is how, how do we meet that, um, the time, meet the, the frame that we're in. And so one of the things we're, we're doing is we're gonna create a series of videos um, and we're actually in production right now uh, that helps uh, young kids um, make baseballs because in the Arab world, for example, you're not going to find a ton of baseballs uh, yet, yet. But it's on our way with partners like Franklin and New Era, New Balance, um, Shut Sports, and uh, in, in, in Major League Baseball. You know, we're we're on our way there, and uh, the amount of uh, equipment that these schools have been given and donated by our incredible private partners. Uh, is, is, is remarkable. Um, but for the kids that don't have access to this at home and who are cooped up in their house, um, probably driving their parents crazy, this will be an opportunity for them to participate in a craft, an art, sort of an arts and crafts where they build a ball with household equipment and then are taught by a former professional coach, current, uh, sorry, former professional player, current college coach, um, taught basic drills that'll get them active, um, keep them engaged, get them excited, continue uh, to share with our great friends in the Arab world uh, the sport of baseball. So I'm excited about that time when we, when, when the kids will be able to get back together, um, when they'll be able to give each other high fives and, 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 and embrace. And I think we're excited about that uh, for all of society. Um, but in the meantime, I'm, I'm continued, continually excited about sports' ability to bring people together even in this time of continued isolation. Thanks for letting me be here today. Uh, it's been a pleasure and I look forward to answering any questions uh, later on. Thank you, Thank Tim. You, I really I appreciate, appreciate that. that. I just, uh, uh, yeah, yes. if you can for a minute. Uh, if I can just ask one question while we have you here before we move on to the next. I, I wanna, to clarify, you built all of this in Egypt from scratch. You didn't do this with any governmental help. Uh, you worked entirely with private sector donors to bring in equipment, to do the educational curriculum uh, element, to, to get the permission to operate in this, this area. And you didn't have any diamonds to work with when you showed up. Can you just explain what that was like starting from nothing and doing this entirely on a non-governmental basis? Well, I mean, I mean, Josh, first and foremost, it's, it's remarkably gratifying when you, when you, when you see a vision start to take on flesh and bones and become a reality. Um, but what's re more remarkable is when you see the kids embrace the vision, right? The kids came because this was a brand new thing for them, but they stayed because they love the sport and uh, because they were having a lot of fun. And so it's funny you mentioned we had no diamonds. Uh, there are, you know, there are a ton of, there are a ton of diamond in the rough baseball players that we've already discovered in Egypt. One of my board members is Bobby Evans. He's the former San Francisco Giants general manager. 
Um, he and the, the Giants are actually another one of our private um, uh, partners and, and donors to the cause. But Bobby, who's on my board, uh, came over and he, you know, I think the most telling statement just from a purely talent standpoint is that he uh, saw a lot of those kids that would be in the top 25 percent of their age bracket if they were here in the United States playing baseball. So there's talent. I don't think that surprises anyone on this um, uh, on this uh, at this meeting. However, it's still worth noting, and it caught the eye of people within Major League Baseball. But I think there's a freedom and in, 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 in an incredible um, excitement to work with private partners um, because they see an opportunity uh, to be a part of a beautiful story um, and to share a game uh, that they love that is really their lifeblood. I mean, these are companies that that make equipment. These are companies that um, it's baseball that is their economic lifeblood, but they love the story. They have a heart as well uh, for the mission of Because Baseball, for bringing people together and watching these great names come together. Uh, yeah, I mean, Josh, just, just quite frankly, it is gratifying and it is, um, you know, it just confirms, I think, a belief that that all of us on this call share that sport is a powerful bridge building vehicle. And baseball, uh, as we're seeing right now, uh, is certainly hitting a home run in the region in that department. Indeed, baseball is the baseball is the one sport right now that is coming back in, in some parts of the world, albeit without people in the stadiums, but, but it is certainly the first sport that's been coming back. Uh, with that in mind, let's turn now to Ryan Murphy. Ryan is the program officer with the Sports Diplomacy Division of the U.S. State Department. Uh, he's been in that position since 2009, directly overseeing the International Sports Programming Initiative. He's also State Department's liaison to the U.S. Olympic Committee. Uh, he has an M.A. in International Sports Law and an M.S.C. in Sports and Recreation Management, just to show how much this uh, person has dedicated his life to sports and sports diplomacy. Ryan, would you like to take it over? Yeah, thank you very much, Josh. I appreciate uh, being involved in this panel. And thank you to the uh, National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations, as well as the King Faisal Center for helping really stand up this forum. I really wanted to talk about uh, sports diplomacy in general and the U.S. government's role. Uh, the U.S. Department of State stood up the Sports Diplomacy Division in 2002 originally as a Muslim outreach tool to really engage youth and communities in underserved, underprivileged communities overseas. <clears throat> the Sports Diplomacy Division is housed within the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs within the U.S. Department of State. And our federal mandate from Congress is people-to-people -people exchanges. Uh, both Mark and Kemp touched on really the relationship within their organizations and that personal story. Uh, Kemp really nailed it when he talked about uh, the baseball coaches or baseball coach from Egypt that came to the U.S. and had that impact on the local community in Richmond, Virginia. That's really the basis of what we do and why we do it is really bringing people together, communities together through sports. Now, the Bureau itself has a lot of different ways that they bring people together. Uh, we have youth programs, arts programs, culture, music, dance, 
uh, educational programs, academic programs, but we specifically use sports as that tool, sports as that hook to bring those communities together. Um, like I said, we really have this federal mandate from Congress to bring these communities together and establish linkages, not only at the national level, but also at the community level. The U.S. does not have a ministry of sports, so it's very grassroots development up rather than top down, such as most other countries. So it's great that we are able to work with some of these grassroots NGOs and organizations to help implement sports programs. <clears throat> we really do this through four main programs. Our first program is our International Sports Programming Initiative. As Josh said, that's the program that I oversee. And we really utilize this to bring people together and, and establish those linkages at the NGO level. We provide funding to US-based nonprofit organizations and public universities to help us implement these two-way exchanges. We work on a regional level. Uh, we provide cooperative agreements to US, these US-based organizations. They help us implement these two-way exchanges. So we send groups of Americans overseas to work with uh, in-country partners overseas to deliver these public diplomacy programs. And we also work with uh, those in-country in programs overseas, as well as the U.S. embassies and U.S. consulates to recruit athletes and coaches and administrators <clears throat> to come to the U.S. for the reciprocal exchange. We've been implementing these programs since 2002. It was the, really the first program that we started. Right after, soon after that, we started bringing uh, youth and administrators and coaches to the U.S. through our sports visitor program. And it started out as really this two-week sports cultural exchange, bringing these youth coaches and administrators to the U.S. for this exchange, really showing them what U.S. society is through the lens of sports. We had them involved in U.S. Uh, schools and seeing how education is tied to the, to the sports structure here in the US. We had them really seeing uh, how there's certain federal legislations that impact sports here in the US. The Americans with Disabilities Act that was implemented 30 years ago, this is the 30th anniversary of that, uh, that law that really increased the opportunities for individuals with disabilities to, to be engaged in sports. We also have uh, Title IX, which is a gender equity law that really increased the engagement of individuals with, or sorry, uh, women and girls to participate in sports. And those are just some of the unique situations that we really touch on during those visitor programs. On the flip side, our reciprocal outbound exchange is our sports visitor or sports envoy program. We work with the U.S. leagues and federations. U.S. Olympic Committee, National Basketball Association, uh, Major League Baseball, as well as others, to identify uh, current and former athletes, professional Olympic level athletes and coaches to travel overseas to work with our U.S. embassies and consulates. And they're on the ground for about five days and really delivering public diplomacy messaging, putting on camps and clinics, and really engaging local communities overseas. A lot of times, for these underserved, underprivileged communities, this is the first time they're really engaging with an American. So it's good for them to see and hear from, from those uh, individuals. And then our last pro program is our Global Sports Mentoring Program. 
we stood up this program in 2012, 2012 as originally our Empowering Women and Girls Through Sports Initiative, which included this mentorship component. It's a month-long mentorship component uh, where we bring about 15 to 20 mid-level to female or high-level female executives from around the globe to the U.S. and they're paired with female mentors here in the U.S. and they go through a week-long orientation, about three weeks or so in the communities with their their host mentor, and then develop action plans and go home to their communities and implement these action plans. That program was so successful that a few years ago we stood up a, a sister program to that, which is our Sport for Community. In the, uh, program, and that is really focused on uh, disability sports and adapted sports. Same mentor, same model, uh, and bringing about the same number of those individuals here to the U.S. for that program. So really, we have a, all these programs going on. We do a lot within the, the region. Uh, we have a number of international sports programming initiative programs that are being stood up by one of our implementers. Uh, we recently did a program on uh, sport and health in Bahrain, and we had, that was through a two-way reciprocal exchange through a number of partners. We have about 27 global sports mentorship program participants from about 10 different countries within the region that have come to the U.S. on that program. We in, two, in September of 2018, we did a sports visitor program where we brought Saudi uh, women's soccer coaches to the U.S. And we actually were able to work with the Saudi Sport for All Federation on that program. And it's great to have uh, them represented here. So a number of different things that we've done throughout the region. Um, we have kind of pivoted during all of this COVID-19 uh, situation. Obviously, we can't do our bread and butter, which are their people-to-people exchanges. So we're doing a lot more virtually. We have uh, stood up a Get Fit campaign where we work with our sports envoys to do a fitness kind of talk as well as uh, fitness sessions with one of my colleagues who runs that program. And we're actually doing a session tomorrow with uh, Abdel Nader, who's an Egyptian-born American basketball player, plays in the NBA for the Oklahoma Thunder. And he is doing a session tomorrow with us at 11 a.m. Uh, and feel free to tune into that. Uh, it's at Sports Diplomacy Division, uh, which is our Facebook feed. And I think it's going to get a great following, obviously, within the region. So I'll leave it at that. I know we're, we're running a little long, but I'll uh, happy to answer any questions that you all have. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate that. That's very kind of you. Speaking of basketball, our next speaker, Ozaifa Amale, is a former international basketball player, a member of the, a formerly a member of the Syrian national basketball team, and someone who now lives in the United States managing his own small business. I'd, the goal here with Ozaifa was to be able to present a personal story from an Arab athlete who has uh, lived and, and participated in Western sports. Uh, to be able to share some insights and thoughts on, on his experiences of what it's like to bridge that uh, divide between the Arab world and the American world on sports. Josefa, can I turn it over to you? Sure. Josh, thank you so much for having me today. Um, it's a pleasure and honor to be here with you today. And I would like to thank 
um, the National Council, as well as Faisal, King Faisal Center for having such a great um, conversation about the sports diplomacy, which is, I believe, as an international basketball player, this is the best way um, to build the bridge between United States and the Arab world. Um, the reason why I would like to put the lights on my story, my career as a basketball player for 11, for over 12 years, is basically to be an inspiration for all the new generation who had the same dreams, who, who wanted to reach their dream. Um, you know, even in the holy book, God gave us his most valuable lessons and inspiration through stories from prophets and righteous. So the next generation and all a human being can learn from and adapt to and take it as an example. Um, I grew up in Damascus where soccer is the number one sports, just like any other place in, in all the Middle East. However, basketball, it's always been one of the most um, prominent sports in the area. Um, I joined one of the best um, team in the capital of Damascus uh, for a summer camp under 16 years old. And soon after that, I played with the team after 60, under 16 and, and soon I joined the national team as well. Um, it's, it's been a great journey and this is the main reason why everybody need to hear it. It's not because it's my story. It's what's coming from that story. It's the moral of, of story. Um, at the age when I joined the national team, we played our first international game and I can still remember this game till this day. Um, we weren't prepared with the little resources we had at that time. Um, and we faced a team, they were really prepared. They had everything, players, coaches, assistant coaches, staff, doctors, equipments, they were prepared. And we lost the game and it was a very tough loss. It was a very tough loss. And I remember after the game, I was in my room, very sad, very angry. Uh, and all I could think of, I wanna get better and I wanna play basketball on the highest level on all aspects. And here were, was the birth of my dream of being the first Syrian in the NBA. Um, for many years, when I was growing up, I want to do something really special. I want to be an inspiration. I want to make history, but I really didn't know how I'm gonna reach this goal. But soon as I make decision and I found out I want to be the first year in the NBA, that dream took over my life. And I was chasing that dream like I never chased anything before. Um, during my travel and my journey in basketball, my most favorite time and the, the time I value the most is the time I spent to get to know my foreign American teammates where I help coaches translate for plays, exercises, help them adapt to the culture over the overseas. Uh, and that creates such a great bond and brotherhoods between us. And it carry with us all over the, the tournament we play in the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia, Dubai, Jordan, Morocco, Syria, Lebanon. And it was just tremendous um, connection we had between each other. Um, Soon after I was received my scholarship 
to study at the International Arab University, where um, I finished my education in business school. And after that, uh, I had the opportunity um, to play for the national team and gain more experience. Soon later, the work broke out in Syria. And at that time, I knew um, I have to search for international opportunities in order to achieve my dream. I came to, US, to USA in 2014, where I played in Chicago, and I would say that was the best time in my life. I get to reunited with all my teammates who I played with overseas, and we all played in Chicago in the Shy League, alongside with high elite NBA players. My first game may be one of the most memory that has taken my mind till this day. I remember I came into the gym, I was scared, I was very nervous, and in the middle of the first quarter, the coach, the coach called my name and asked me to sub one of the NBA players. I froze for a second, I froze for a second, but right away I ran to the sideline and asked the ref to put me in. And I, I can still remember at that time People were like talking, like laughing. They didn't know who I am. Even the commentator couldn't pronounce my name. And it was funny. But the moment I hit the court, I had to do what I was there to do. Uh, I had a couple of quick baskets, a couple of quick assists. And we were down by six points and that tied the game and make the coach take a timeout right away. Everything had changed at that point. The fans got, this, got excited, my teammates went, went crazy, and I didn't know what's going on, but I just kept going. We won that game, and we went to the second round in the final. Soon after the Shy League, reality hit again. NBA season was about to start, and I knew that I have to start from scratch. I knew for me to reach my dream, I have to start from zero. I joined the ABA. I was invited to play in the ABA, which is the American Basketball Association. I played for the Chicago, uh, for the Windy City Bulls for um, almost two seasons. It was a tough experience. It was a tough experience, especially my first uh, year with the team. Um, I was trying to adapt to the basketball game in the state. Um, it wasn't easy. It's a completely different overseas basketball, more about plays, system around defense and offense. Uh, where here in the state, system is very important, but also it's important how to put all this highly talented individual together to create a harmonious team. Um, after my first year, my second year, everything got better. I was more comfortable um, to show my character on the court. I was more comfortable to show what I'm made of, and I had to back up my dreams with action, and things start get better from from there. And I remember after playing in the ABA for two seasons, um, I got connected with a new manager, or actually new agent, where he secured three major connections for me. First, it was with the Bulls organization where I met with someone in their um, management who showed interest of having this first seat in the NBA with them, especially um, Chicago being such a diverse city. 
And then I had the opportunity to work out with being invited for another tryout with the Charlotte Hornets in North Carolina. And then um, with the Washington Wizards through their G League team here, especially late, lately, the G League was more officially affiliated with the NBA. Um, and it was a time for me uh, to seek a real serious opportunity to play in the NBA. After those tryouts, sadly, it didn't work. And I know at that, at that point, I have to focus on my life and on my business, especially after I got married in Chicago. Um, I wanted to focus more on my life to be able to sustain uh, and keep working on my dream. However, at that time, I noticed that maybe I'm not playing the NBA. Maybe I'm not the first year in the NBA. But this is the moral of the story. So yes, absolutely, you have to set up your dream, set up your goal. But at the same time, you never know where life takes you. God always have good plans for you, maybe better plans than the one you had already. I changed my dream from wanting to be the first student in the NBA and play in the NBA to much bigger dream. I wanted to bring the NBA to the Middle East. I want all those young generation to feel like I can still live this beautiful journey. There's nothing impossible. I can still follow my passion. And here, during my time here in the state, I was participating and engaging in too many uh, basketball academies and programs, uh, such in Chicago, Chicago Basketball Academy, where we work on helping young athletes who didn't get a chance to be drafted or play in the NBA to go play overseas and have a unique experience in playing in the Middle East. Um, it was it was it was beautiful. And then I also worked with a basketball school here in DC called um, Skill Society, run by Coach Crouch, who's an amazing teacher and leader for all the young athletes here in the area, in the DMV area and also as well with great NBA, NCAA, WNBA players on the highest level. However, I, I still had to focus on my business. And at that time, um, me and my wife, we took over ownership for a cafe, boutique cafe here in the heart of McLean, where we serve the community proudly every day. Uh, and I found another passion for me. I found a passion of giving back, uh, found the importance of not only chasing your dream, but being part of other people's dream. You can, in this, in this community here in the state, it's very important to give back, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your profession. It's all about what you can offer and give back. And that's what makes you feel better. It makes you, makes you feel like I'm on the right path. Um, it was it was it was tough transition. However, it was very enjoyable, very interesting. Um, I feel like it's very essential to be uh, on this point, and um, that's where my my travel and all my ins inspirational uh, journey is start to make sense. To be able to translate it to people.
Hold hold on hold on to that thought. Hold on to that thought, Hazifa. That's beautiful. We're running out of time. Bismillah, that is fantastic. I love hearing those stories, and I wish we had more time to hear more of them. Uh, but it's true that this is this is where life takes you, and um, and it's a beautiful place. So, what we need to do though, with the little limited time that we have left, is go to Dr. Heidi Al Askari, Dr. Heidi, the CEO of the Saudi Arabian Special Olympics Committee. Uh, she's on the board and a member of all sorts of associations in the kingdom, the Down Syndrome Charitable Association, the Association for Hearing Impairment, uh, the Society for Rehabilitation and Education. What I'd like Dr. Heidi to do is to be able to respond a bit to what we've heard so far and offer us a couple insights of what it's like working in the Special Olympics Committee and dealing with uh, uh, athletes with special challenges. Dr. Heidi, and if we could all the rest of us mute our microphone. Thank you. Thank you very much, Joshua. It's a pleasure to be here with such inspirational uh, speakers and stories and, and uh, people who are so passionate about what they do and it shows, um, you, you, you feel it tangibly. Um, look, sports have been around for over 15,000 years. Um, historically, there's evidence that it goes all the way back to the upper Paleolithic time. Sports is going to continue to be around for a long time. I think what we see is it changes uh, in terms of how it manifests in each generation, in each area. So um, I'm not too worried about sports disappearing. Um, I think uh, we will adapt and we will see where it takes us. Um, whoever would have thought that we'd be doing sports online um, as much as we're doing it right now. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling to me. So um, I just wanted to um, give a nod to everybody who's spoken. I've really enjoyed listening to you, and I think there are multiple layers to what we heard, and that certainly applies to persons with uh, disabilities. I, uh, I am not somebody who is specialized in sports. I'm a speech-language pathologist by training, so I have a different lens when I look at sports. To me, sports is a platform. It's a tool. It's a Trojan horse, if you will, um, for other really serious topics uh, to be discussed and to be put out there for consideration. I heard this throughout all of our, our speakers' um, speeches today, everything from the potential uh, to discuss really serious issues, uh, bring multilateralism to the table at very high levels, talk about violence, um, talk about health issues, um, talk about partnerships and business opportunities, et cetera. So there's all these layers that are very important and specifically giving a voice to um, marginalized groups who don't have voices, uh, whether it's persons with disabilities, um, orphans, uh, people who live in refugee camps or areas that are troubled. Um, I think we've heard today the power of sports and I think it's very important to keep that in mind. Um, as you said, I am very honored to be part of the Special Olympics um, and leading that initiative here. And I think it's a very humbling experience. In March 2019, we attended uh, the World Games in Abu Dhabi. And I'm going to share a very brief story with you because I think it sort of summarizes the whole thing. Uh, one of our team members was um, in the lobby. And just to set the stage a little bit, um, this was the first time Saudi Arabia had taken female athletes uh, to the games. So we had 21 female athletes, 29 male athletes, 
We participated in nine various sports, which is part of the diversity of Special Olympics. Uh, it allows the opportunity to participate in over 40 sports. Um, we were there and there was a lot of focus on us taking a female delegation. Uh, what I'm very proud of is, yes, it was historical. Yes, it was the first time we took females, but we took a whole community with us. We had people online supporting us from back home. We had families there uh, of the athletes. We had volunteers. We had medical personnel as volunteers. But the striking story was one of our team members was in the lobby and she was approached by a, a woman from Germany. And at the time, March 19th, there was a lot going on for the country, uh, especially on the international scene, not all very pleasant. Um, and she literally, the woman said, can I stop you? Are you with the Saudi team? And our team member said, yes, very proudly, very happily, I'm with the Saudi team. And she immediately, literally laid into her. She's like, you know what? I was gonna go to the organizers and write a letter and contest why are you here and complain and with everything going on and your stance on women, I really was upset that you were here. She said, but, and that but is very important. She said, but I saw you and I saw you together and I saw how you supported each other and how the boys were supporting the girls and the girls were out there supporting the boys and your families, your families were there and you love each other. I feel the love. And she said, can I get a visa to come visit? And to me, that is sports diplomacy in a nutshell. It, it just, I mean, it makes me want to cry every time I tell that story because literally we didn't even try. It was just, she observed, she saw, and just by being yourselves, sports provided an opportunity. So one of the things we need to keep in mind is sports provides an opportunity in such a short period of time, in one game, in one event, in one interaction, all the ranges of being what, it make, what makes us human happens. We have unified goals, we have expectations, we have hopes, we have dreams. They can be shattered, you can walk out crying, you can walk out joyous. It really summarizes what it means to be human. And for me, there's nothing more powerful than that. You can spend, in my career, I've spent a lot of energy and time through educational platforms, through employment platforms, um, trying to develop all of these structures to include persons with disabilities. It takes a lot of time and effort. I have never in my 30 years of work seen what one week can do to change individuals and give them a voice. So if um, Mr. Kemp will allow me to add one more layer, he talked about family, community, and culture. I just want to add the power of the individual, empowering the individual people who never had a voice, who come in and don't say much, and by the end of a game are standing proudly as an inspiration for a whole nation. People who may be shy and don't want to talk, but yet now they're going out and giving interviews and hugs and, and sharing their stories. So I think that layer is extremely important. And I think we need to think about this as the 1,000 mile journey. Every life that's touched by sports, every opportunity that's out there, it changes you in a fundamental way that I have not seen anything else be able to do. So it is a privilege and an honor to sit with people who are passionate about this. Um, no matter how fancy or simple we are when we play, the most important thing is we play. 
And I would like to just end my comments with um, the Special Olympics oath. Um, you know, I, I, I go back and forth, lots of stories, but I think it also summarizes it. The oath goes, let me win, but if I cannot win, let me be brave in the attempt. And I think each and every person who contributes to this is brave. And I think it's our journey in learning how to be brave together that brings us together. And it's that human spirit, that idea of being brave doesn't mean winning, but it means, you know, actually going out there, trying, putting yourself out there, taking risks that will make us stronger as a whole. So thank you so much, each and every one of you for everything that you do. Thank you for giving voices to people who don't have the opportunity to have the voice. And I can tell you from where I sit, it means the world to them. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Heidi. I think that was perfect to, a perfect way to end this because this gets to the point of why we're here today. Uh, it's not about particularly showcasing one government or one organization or one activity. The point was to show these different careers, these different lives that each of our speakers have, that they've engaged with sports, uh, not for the sake of getting up on television and being seen for millions uh, as, as a, a showcase of their talents, but rather e each of these people has explored their passion, their love of what they do uh, in creative ways, in ways that people entering the field of Middle East studies or people entering government service or engaging with the Arab world might not normally think of. These types of careers, these types of activities are not the, the normal career paths that people tend to take. And that these, these opportunities, whether it's uh, being able to do a cultural exchange uh, to come as a, a team to America and see your counterparts working on what you work on, or uh, the chance to open up electronic sports uh, for a whole generation whose parents, whose relatives might not approve of this type of activity, or uh, making opportunities available for special needs individuals in a society where, where that was unthinkable even 10 years ago. Uh, you know, or for instance, uh, in Kemp's example, creating an organization from scratch entirely from, from private sector donations to, to bring a sport to a country that, that hasn't had that sport in over 100 years. Um, these are aspects of the region, aspects of the Arab world that we don't usually think about, don't usually contemplate. And the opportunity today was to try and shed some light <laughs> on those activities and open up those opportunities for others. I see that Dr. Anthony is, is on board with us again. Uh, I'd like to close it out by turning to him for any, any concluding remarks. Uh, thank you all for coming. It's been a pleasure to have you, Dr. Anthony. Uh, thank you, Josh. Um, again, it's a privilege and a pleasure and an honor to be co-chairing this and co-sponsoring this event with the King Faisal Foundation for Islamic Studies and Research. I'd like to make three brief points uh, here. Um, I didn't mention at the beginning that uh, I was a former athlete and uh, playing four different sports, baseball, basketball, football, and track, and lettering in all four. And indeed, I wasn't just in love with those sports. I wasn't just uh, obsessed with them. In a way, I was addicted to them. So here's the point, that there would be uh, those, uh, my Syrian colleague may be an echo of this, that we loved it so much, we dreamed so much, we were so fulfilled and inspired by this and, and felt a calling that was as much psychological and physical and moral as it was also social. Uh, but in my case, and uh, others I've watched as well, 
We did so at the expense of our education. So when I finished secondary school, I had nine scholarship offers uh, for universities to play uh, one or more sports for their teams, provided contingent upon my being accepted academically. It turned out that my grades, my education um, had been so uh, neglected uh, that I could not be accepted in any of the nine. So I went into the army. I became a soldier, and only after I came out uh, did I work at nighttime uh, after working in the daytime uh, to get my education. The point being uh, that had the education part been linked to the athletic part all along, uh, the two would have uh, fed the other, enriched the other, benefited the other. Uh, and so I, I mentioned this. Secondly, uh, one or more of our speakers has talked about the joy of winning and training uh, to win. Um, I'm all for that, but I've moved away from winning because mm -hmm. winning is almost synonymous with being successful. And the opposite of success is failure. Mm -hmm. I think there's something else here that's a value that's just as important, if not more so. And I think it is to be effective. Now, being effective doesn't conjure up the notions of successful or failure, but being effective, all of us can be, the more so. And to be other-oriented as much as we are striving to achieve our own goals here. And being other-oriented and being effective, all of us can be that. Uh, so the goal uh, is to participate and do one's best and achieve what is possible and not score or gauge or judge ourselves on whether we won or we failed. There were times where, yes, indeed, uh, I lost or I let my team down. And I remember going into the locker room and crying my heart out and blaming myself. Now, if I'd had a different perspective there in terms of just playing and participating and effective, uh, I would have been uh, as joyous as the rest of us, uh, whether we lost or, or we won. And lastly, on the support aspect, uh, one of uh, our speakers, uh, uh, great because uh, baseball, who's <laughs> from Richmond, Virginia, where coincidentally I'm also from, grew up there, <laughs> both of us did, that's where we played and learned this particular game. Uh, what happens if you lose the private sector support? It's a given from a Department of State representative spokesperson that there's official support, governmental support, their fiscal monetary policies uh, that help to support this. If one loses the private sector support, one risks at the optical level of being an agent of a government, of being part of a government set of policies, internationally formulations towards another country where the games are being played. Uh, I would put greater emphasis on uh, the effort uh, to find private sector supporters almost exclusively if possible, and if not exclusively, then partially, uh, and uh, if not uh, partially, certainly then minimally. Uh, these are my three points, and uh, it's been a joy to listen to everyone. I've learned an enormous amount, and I'm, I'm the better off. I'm the net beneficiary for this event. And um, it's because each of you participated, you were effective. And you didn't win, you didn't lose, you were effective. And we're all in your debt. Thank you.